Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed the housing crisis in mobile home parks, learned how capitalism defined the notion of disability, and heard fierce feminist hip-hop. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpen Week in Review for July 12, 2019. Kiefer Dunn spoke with author Keith Rosenthal about the roots of the Americans with Disabilities Act and how disability has actually been defined by capitalism. Rosenthal, who edited a new collection of writings on disability and oppression, traces how the very concept of the disabled was rooted in Victorian notions of production. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2. Yeah, let's talk about just disability as a, uh, as a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I think most people are um, more familiar with it as a sort of uh, personal, individual, or medical concept. It's not yeah. usually thought of in particularly political mm-hmm. terms. Um, it's something that you maybe give donations to, um, or you know, there's various medical research, things like that, sure. which are all great. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is a there is a tr- uh, a radical political tradition of uh, disabled activists um, who have attempted to raise it as a political mm. demand, somewhat akin to um, the uh, civil rights movement for uh, black rights or for women's rights, mm-hmm. gay rights, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, in a in a you know to summarize it or. Um, you know, to give a brief, you know, sense of it. Basically, the notion is that disability is something that um, is both a historically fluid and mm. conditioned, and um, b is a function of the social relations, uh, material environment, mm-hmm. um, economic conditions of society sure. that disable one who has um, a various impairment of some sort. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, cut me off if I'm no, going no. too long on one thing. But, no. Um, yeah, that's a more, that, that, that notion that we have today of disability is a more uh, recent phenomenon, you know, dating back historically um, to like, I mean, you can go way back to various nomadic hunter-gatherer societies or feudal societies in which you have a bunch of peasant families more or less working together on a plot of land. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't the same kind of regimented and exact, precise, tailorized work yeah. as you have today. Um, there was a division of labor that was more or less decided by the given tribe or clan or family. Right. Um, there were certainly differences in abilities there were certainly all kinds of, um, you know, superstitions and, you know, abusive <laughs> behavior. Sure. Um, but you didn't have the systematic segregation and categorization of people based upon yeah. a given, uh, quote-unquote, abnormality. Right. You had people that contributed in whatever way they could right. um, to, you know, the family's wealth or the tribe's wealth or the clan's wealth. Right. And, it wasn't like a kind of situation where you were like in or out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Everyone, you know, because, I mean, there was no basis to really do that. Right. And again, uh, you know, abuses did take place. They happen. Um, 
you know, but, uh, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't like we have today yeah. where it's a categorical legal, you know, separation. Um, and what happens with the emergence of industrial capitalism, factory wage labor, a very particular kind. Yeah. Um, well, two things happen. One, you know, and this is something that, um, the preeminent, you know, uh, 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 analyst of capital, mm-hmm. Mark Karl Marx <laughs> talks about the man himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is that so? Uh, it was necessary to create a proletariat, so dispossession uh-huh. um, of peasant lands. You know, re- uh, alienating them from the tools and resources of production, and um, forcing them to go work in these like hell holes. I mean, sure. we all are, are, are now familiar, whether it's, I mean, we're, you know, it's it, it's a trope now that, you know, the industrial, the emergence of the industrial revolution, industrial was, was just like hellscapes of, you know, these satanic mills and, you know. Yeah, like um, child labor. Oh, and, yeah, just everything. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, it was the state comes in and passes a bunch of laws saying that, if you are a vagabond, if you're begging on the street, one offense, you know, you get thrown into the workhouse, two offenses, you know, you're um, branded, three, you know, they'll execute you. I mean, yeah. and these are laws that in the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically it was an attempt to force people into these situations who didn't want to. Now, the only exception to that that's written into a lot of these codes is those who were deemed unable yeah. to engage in this modern form of production. That, and what that means additionally is that the, the owners of these mills, these factories, the, the, the owners of this capital, capitalists, yeah. deemed a person uh, insufficiently profitable, right? Because the whole sure. notion is that you need someone who's going to be able to pump out a certain number of commodities right. so that you not only get a return on your vest- investment, but at a gain, at a profit. Yeah. And if it was deemed that somebody was not sufficiently productive in that regard, then it would be a liability rather than an asset to sure. the employer. And so that person was given uh, you know, the, the privilege, quote unquote, of right. not working, but that uh, what came with it was then utter marginalization, segregation. And that's where you have the, you know, you begin to have asylums and these institutions and um, you know, really the first forms of carceral you know, uh, institutions yeah. for disabled people, for feeble mind. And they came, you know, a whole list of feeble mind, epilepsy, any of these things. You start having the warehousing of people. Um, and that's that's really the origins of, of where all this stuff comes from. And then it just, you know, takes on a more and more um, scientific and, yeah. or, you know, like it's pseudoscientific, yeah. um, a more precise categorization and um, of separating out. I mean, even so, you look at today, you know, written into U.S. Social Security law that to be, I mean, it's uh, as defined in, you know, U.S. code, to be disabled is to be uh, unable to engage in uh, what they call it, gainful uh, employment. <laughs> yeah. In other words, that's what, so disability is um, defined in relation to wage labor under conditions right. of capitalist accumulation and production. Right. You know, and so that's, I think, gives a sense of what, we begin to talk about when we talk about disability as a political and historical um, yeah. rather than a sort of like just some people are different. You know? <laughs> right. Or or even just like a, a strictly sort of like ethical commitment. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, so and it's I, I never sort of thought about it in relation to tailorization before. Yeah. It makes total sense, and 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 the pseudoscience as well as sort of um, eugenics and these oh, yeah. kind of awful awful chapters. Right. It makes total sense that they emerged at that at yeah. a time at, the, at a time when industrialization is sort of really like hitting its pinnacle yeah. um, in the places where it's hitting its pinnacle. Yeah, that's um, yeah, and so I, and then the you know extreme of that um, that we saw throughout Europe, but actually, you know, began first in America was the, yeah, eugenics movement and the sterilization of disabled people, Yeah, which, um, you know, came to, so, so basically, the, you know, the, um, if we, uh, you know, start from the basis that, okay, here's people who are not uh, useful to capitalist productive process, mm-hmm. you know, they're basically come to increasingly be seen as just you know, uh, waste, you know, like uh, a, a uh, what's the word, just like surplus people. Sure. Superfluous humans. Right. Who have no value. Right. So the, so, so the, so the system, the economic system. Um, so one is warehousing them in times of crisis, either as a scapegoat mm. or as a way of saving money on the budget. You know, why? I mean, and you hear it today, you hear it all the time from, you know, more conservative when they talk about, you know, when you really get into people who are like committed to their, their yeah. conservatism, you know, they'll admit they're they'll sort of, uh, you know, concede their, uh, you know, their, their inner thought that, yeah, well, if somebody is disabled and just a, a drain on the system. Like, why are we paying money to keep them alive? Right. Pay for their health care or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's, and that's the essential like social Darwinist competitive survival of the fittest ethic at the heart of capitalism that, you know, the weak just sure. will fall away and the strong will, you know, and that ultimately, yeah, and it's extreme leads to these just, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, just, you know, sure. massive killings. Um, but yeah, in this country is where it first started, the mm-hmm. sterilization laws, which uh, starting in 1907 in Indiana and then uh, uh, and, and an additional 33 states wow. by the 1920s had laws calling for the involuntary sterilization of huge, like, feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, um, physical deformities. Including here um, in Illinois, we should point out. Yes. Illinois was one of the leading states that did that. Yeah, And exactly. Chicago was one of the centers where uh, people did eugenic studies over at the University of Chicago, which I'm sure you would you would bring up and note in your book. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah the, the U.S. became sort of uh, the model for these laws. In fact... Um, I I had never read Hitler's Mein Kampf, and I don't necessarily recommend that you do. But you know, <laughs> out of curiosity, sure, to give it a, give it a look yeah. to see what you know evils abound. But yeah, Hitler in Mein Kampf says we need to do what the U.S. is doing, right. what they're doing in terms of racial segre- racial you know segregation along natural hierarchies, what they're doing in terms of their sterilization laws. Yeah. Like, we need that here. Yeah. And so the U.S. really pioneered that. Yeah. Um, went up to the, even went to the Supreme Court in 1927. Um, the Supreme Court, there was a ruling, uh, this woman, uh, Carrie Buck, who was on, received welfare assistance and um, had a child. Um, and uh, the, ju- the Supreme Court ruled that um, the state has an interest in involuntarily sterilizing this person yeah. so that they no longer produce uh, public charges, feeble-minded public charges, because yeah. two of her previous children had disabilities. 
ironically, the, uh, the child in question um, turned out to not have any disability, um, the, but the, the one who prompted the case. But, um, and this, yes, the Supreme Court, and, and actually to this day, that's never been overruled. Um, oh, wow. In the 1970s, I forget the exact date, what there was was there was an executive order that said that uh, any institution that receives federal funding mm-hmm. can't engage in involuntary sterilization. But uh, it is the, the notion that a private agency or hospital can engage in that it's, or a state, yeah. you know, that, that is yet to be overturned. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And uh, so that, but that's the extreme, right? Yeah, that's, sure. that's where it can lead in times of crisis or scapegoating. John Daly spoke with Jerry Trecker about the roots of the collapse of public education. Tracing the discontent of the Vietnam War era and the pushback to Brown v. Topeka, Trecker discusses how public schools became a convenient punching bag. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4. You taught in Connecticut and you taught history and English. Yes, I did. And, you know, public schools right now, especially in this city, uh, as well as nationally, are under a great deal of pressure. Uh, In our city, we've had other guests such as Eve Ewing on the show speaking about public school closings in Chicago. You obviously live in a small rural community in in Connecticut, which has had uh, the issues of public school closings there as well with Parish Hill and, and the consolidation of schools. I wondered if, you know, you haven't been a teacher for, I, I believe it's 10 or 15 years now, but uh, I wondered. It's 25, Is it 25? Well, it's been a, it's been a while. I how won- fast it goes. Yeah. I wondered if at this remove, though, we could have a, a little chat about your take on what is going on in American education, because uh, it's a topic we talk about quite frequently on this show, how there seems to be this sense that public schools are not serving students. And I'm not convinced that's the case from what I see. uh, And I'm not convinced that's the case from what I read. But we are in the midst of a a very big privatization and charter school movement. And there's tremendous pressure in American urban cities, such as Chicago, to change the way that we we teach children. And and you uh, are unique in the fact that you had uh, a legacy that stretches back to the 1960s, which was a very tumultuous time as well. You taught people during uh, one of the last great societal upheavals, which is the Vietnam War. I wondered if you could share with us some of your thoughts on American education. That's a, that's a huge, huge issue. Um, I, I really think there, there are three things that, that have gone on in American education in the last now uh, nearly 80 years. Uh, the first one, and, and obviously the most significant one, has been the backlash, immediate and never, never diminishing backlash to the Brown versus Topeka decision. Uh, many public school, many private schools in this country uh, were created after that 1952 decision to do nothing more than to allow white students to escape attending integrated schools. Uh, we, if you ignore that fact, you, you might as well not discuss what's going on. Um, the second thing I think that, that is extremely uh, important to look at is that Vietnam destroyed confidence in the American government. Uh, it was the first time in American history that we knew, everyone knew, 
that the government was lying to you. Uh, when the Pentagon Papers were published, any uh, mirage that you wanted to have was destroyed. We have now reached the point where I, I would guess at least half, maybe more than half of the country doesn't even listen when the president makes a speech because they don't believe him. And the other half of the country doesn't listen to the opposition because they don't believe them. That goes back to to uh, Vietnam. And the third thing that's happened uh, is that I think at least, I, I, I couldn't prove it, but I certainly have the feeling that the right-wing Republican Party latched on to the idea that one of the ways to destroy the Democrats was to destroy public education. Because if you do that, if you don't educate your public to the same level, and if we're honest about it, the public schools had to educate the majority of the Americans, uh, and still do have to educate the majority of the Americans, if you consistently present the idea that those schools are preaching something that isn't true, you destroy faith in that system, and the people who attend the public schools don't have the same confidence and faith that they, they once did. Uh, it's, it's something that the schools have been in the center of, but I think it's a much, it's a much more extensive issue than, than we like to believe that it is. I was born in 1980 and, and went to a Chicago public school, but before that I went to a Chicago private school, Catholic school. It's interesting that they hear that perspective. Um, when I think about, you know, it, my parents taking me out of that school and moving, it became kind of a dynamic marketplace. What I mean by that is um, when I was taken out, when I went to a Chicago public school, that was a better school. Um, I think people have gone back and forth in this neighborhood specifically uh, as a very local example, um, back and forth to where has been better, and that's that's not been been one answer over the last in the last forty years for me at least. Well, for much of my career, uh, Catholic education, and it was very important in in the Greater Hartford area where I taught. Catholic education was often K through eight, and come ninth grade most of those students went to public school. In the 60s, there was, because of the population boom, a growth in the number of Catholic schools, Catholic high schools. And it, seemed, it has always seemed to me that the development of the Catholic school system was fueled by two things. One, a, a desire uh, on many parents' parts to have Catholic education for their children. But also, there was a very emerging uh, desire at that point to have schools that had very good basketball teams and had very good football teams and had very good baseball teams. And if you look at the history of the public schools in, in this country and you look at what you've got in Chicago now, I read somewhere that 75% of Chicago students attend a school that's outside their district. And I know that every basketball tournament in Illinois, the greatest talking point is the fact that the teams who reach the final have players who don't come from their area. 
that they've been, quote, recruited from somewhere else. And we see that going on all over the country. And I think uh, one of the things that has really hurt the public school system is the idea that you can pull the kid out now and send them to the arts magnet or send them to the science magnet or send them to the basketball magnet and they will have a better future. Public schools don't have any answer for that because of the way they're, they're structured. I know way back in, in my early teaching career, we had an athletic director in town who would not, absolutely would not let the public schools play the Catholic schools because the Catholic schools, quote, recruited. I know that every time we got into a big basketball game um, or into a tournament, I remember once going to a, to a school, uh, Weaver High School in, in Hartford, where uh, the great John Egan, a great uh, pro player, uh, led them to a New England championship in 1957. About 20 years later, I covered a game between uh, Weaver and, and Wilbur Cross, and the coach of uh, Weaver at that time was John Lambert, and I'd known him for a long time. I said, John, uh, you know, they lost the game to Cross by maybe 20 points. And I said, gee, I, this isn't the Weaver team that, uh, that I expected to see. And he said, I've got a great team. The only problem is one of them starts for Farmington High, one starts for Northwest, Northwest Catholic, one of them's going to East Granby. They'd been plucked out uh, for either, uh, to quote, integration purposes or because the parents thought they had better chance to, to play basketball somewhere else. And that, that's, that has really hurt the public schools. If you take the top kids, academic and sports, out of a senior class, I'll guarantee you your school isn't going to be very good. Size matters, size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seismankowski. All right, I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning, and I'm pilfering food and stuff from the GoPro. I'm pretty good at knowing exactly... Uh, I'm pretty good at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I, I almost got... Oh, who's that? What the... Who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't, like, plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want and where it is before you take it. Was that? Alright. Alright, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. Oh, 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 what was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I, it's gone. Okay, I gotta make this quick. Alright. Alright. I got the chips. Next on my list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need... Let's check the ice box. Uh, really. oh, oh, nice! Oh. Ah! My back. Get off me! Ah, get off me! Oh, oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face! This got scratched! Oh. I gotta get to the closet. Okay, get Alright. I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature with blades for hands. 
was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. I gotta get the light. Come on out, you coward. Here it comes. I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. You sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? Sorry I scared you. Take my chips and salsa and be on my way. Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Joink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Whoa! Oh. Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump's 4th of July speech avoids politics but confuses many. Fox carries video and audio of soccer fans trashing Trump. Britain's ambassador calls Trump an insecure liar in leaked cables. Trump lies about conditions at the border. Trump's fourth bankrupted D.C.'s anti-terror fund. And an accused child rapist is linked to Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 896, July 4th. Trump gave a 4th of July speech mostly dedicated to the armed forces as fighter jets roared overhead. It was the sort of grand military display he had wanted since witnessing one in France two years ago. Flanked by tanks in front of the Lincoln Memorial and left at the altar by many of the top military brass he had asked to attend, Trump delivered a 45-minute speech from behind rain-streaked bulletproof glass. Many in the crowd seemed puzzled by the speech in which Trump made no mention of Democrats or Robert Mueller, the special counsel in the Russian investigation, or any of his presidential rivals, his usual target at his rallies. Trump also made a number of odd statements saying at one point the Continental Army took over the airports during the Revolutionary War. Trump claimed he was not willing to tackle climate change because windmills don't work. Quote, I'm not looking to put our companies out of business. I'm not looking to create a standard that is so high. We're going to lose 25% of our production. I'm not willing to do that. We have the cleanest water we've ever had. We have the cleanest air we've ever had. I'm not willing to sacrifice the tremendous power of what we've built up over a long period of time and that I've enhanced and revised. When the wind goes off, the plant isn't working. It doesn't always work with solar because solar's just not strong enough and a lot of them want to go to wind, which has caused a lot of problems. The United States is playing tremendous amounts of subsidies for winds. I don't like it. I don't like it. 897, July 5th. Trump called the Federal Reserve a most difficult problem facing the country. Quote, they raised rates too soon, too often, and tightened, while others did just the opposite. As well as we were doing from the day after the great election when the market shot right up, it could have been even better. Massive additional wealth should have been created and used very well. Our most difficult problem is not our competitors, it is the Federal Reserve. Trump this week nominated a new member to the Fed who supports a return to the gold standard. Trump claimed the teleprompter stopped working during a much-mocked passage of his 4th of July speech in which he claimed the Continental Army occupied the airports. Quote, I knew the speech very well, so I was able to do it without a teleprompter. 
Trump is reportedly considering issuing an executive order to get his citizenship question on the 2020 census, despite statements last week from both the Department of Justice and his Secretary of Commerce that the administration was printing the census without the question. It is unclear if such an order can be issued, as while the administration is required to conduct the census, it is the job of Congress to oversee it. Trump has also asked days to find a way to weaken the U.S. dollar in an effort to boost the economy ahead of the 2020 presidential election. Trump believes the strengthening dollar is a threat to his economic agenda. Trump asked about the dollar in job interviews with both Judy Shelton and Christopher Waller last week, who he selected for seats on the Fed. Date 198, July 6th. Cables from Britain's ambassador to the United States were leaked to the Daily Mail. In the cable, Sir Kim Dara called Trump uniquely dysfunctional and inept, and added that media reports about vicious administration rows, knife fights, as Dara put it, were true. He also cast doubt on whether the Trump regime would ever become more stable, described the president as deeply insecure, and suggested Trump's career might end in disgrace. Derek also said that Trump lied about backing off an attack on Iran. Quote, Trump's claim, however, that he changed his mind because 150 predicted casualties doesn't stand up. He certainly would have heard this figure in his initial briefing. It's more likely he was never fully on board and he was worried about how this apparent reversal of his campaign promises would look during 2020. Asked about the comments, Trump said, quote, The ambassador has not served the UK well. I can tell you that. We're not big fans of that man. I can say things about him, but I won't bother. Kim Derrick and Trump had met actually seven or eight times and up until the cables leaked had said to have had a cordial relationship. Melania Trump was honored in her home country of Slovenia with a statue in the city of Snibica. The hand-carved wooden statue, which was unveiled Friday in the First Lady's hometown, shows her adorned in the powder blue suit by Ralph Lauren that she wore during the inauguration, posing as she waves her hand. The statue was commissioned by Berlin-based American artist Brad Downey and created by Alice Zupvik, a local Slovenian artist who used a chainsaw to carve out the First Lady's likeness. Reviews of the statue are mixed. Quote, the sculptor worked a long time on this, and she does not look as beautiful as she normally is. Others called the statue a disgrace, with one local claiming it looked like a Smurfette. Day 199, July 7th. Trump claimed that reports of sordid conditions at the border were fake. Quote, Border Patrol and others in law enforcement have been doing a great job. We said there was a crisis and the fake news and the Dems said it was manufactured. Federal detention centers are crowded, which we brought up, not them, because Dems won't change the loopholes in asylum. Big media con job. In fact, the reports were made by Trump's own government, which called it a ticking time bomb and described an increasingly dangerous situation for both migrants and agents. The report said children at three facilities had no access to showers and that some children under age seven had been held in jam centers for more than two weeks. Some cells were so cramped adults were forced to stand for days on end. After searing a series of angry tweets claiming the condition in detention centers had been misrepresented, Trump claimed that, quote, what we're going to do is I'm going to start showing some of these detention centers to the press. I want the press to go in and see them. We're going to send people in. We're going to have some of the press go in. Minutes after the United States women's soccer team won their second World Cup in a row, a reporter asked Trump about the gender pay gap in soccer. Quote, I would like to see that, but you've also got to look at the numbers. You have to look at who's taking in what. Trump also walked back his invite to the team saying, quote, we'll look at that. Trump also attacked Fox News on Sunday, hours after the cable network broadcast live video of a group of bar patrons in France chanting F Trump. Hours later, the president ripped into Fox News on Twitter, quote, watching Fox News weekend anchors is worse than watching low ratings fake news CNN or lying Brian Williams remember when he totally fabricated a war story, trying to make himself into a hero and got fired a very dishonest journalist. And the crew of degenerate Comcast, NBC, MSNBC Trump haters who do whatever Brian and Steve tell them to do. Like CNN, NBC is also way down in the ratings, but Fox News, who failed in getting the very boring Dem debates, is now loading up with Democrats and even using fake, unsourced NY Times as a source of information. Asked the Times what they paid for the Boston Globe and what they sold it, lost $1.5 billion, or their old headquarters building disaster, or their unfunded liability. 
Fox News is changing fast, but they forgot the people who got them there. Day 900, July 8th. Jeffrey Epstein, a billionaire financier who has long been accused of molesting dozens of minors, was arrested and charged with sex trafficking by federal prosecutors. Epstein, a one-time confidant of Trump, avoided federal criminal charges in 2008 in a widely criticized plea deal in Florida. That plea deal was brokered by Trump's labor secretary, Alexander Acosta. In 2002, Trump told New York Magazine that Epstein, quote, was a terrific guy who likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Trump and Epstein were also once the only attendees at a party with roughly two dozen women at Mar-a-Lago. 28 women were flown in for a calendar girl competition organized at Trump's request. Meanwhile, Trump said he felt very badly for Acosta while praising him as excellent and very good at his job. Trump added he would be looking very closely at the circumstances surrounding Epstein's plea deal. Without offering details, Attorney General William Barr told reporters there's a pathway to legally add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Barr said the Supreme Court's ruling against the administration was wrong, and that there's an opportunity potentially to cure the lack of clarity that was the problem, and we might as well take a shot at doing that. New York State enacted a law that will allow congressional committees to access Trump's New York State tax returns. The bill requires state tax officials to release the state returns on the request of the House Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Finance Committee, or the Joint Committee on Taxation. Trump's personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow, called the new law more presidential harassment. The House sued the Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service last week to try to force them to release the returns. In a related story, congressional Democrats issued three dozen subpoenas to the Trump Organization and other Trump businesses tied to a lawsuit accusing Trump of profiting from foreign governments. The Justice Department filed an emergency motion to an appeals court in an attempt to prevent those subpoenas from going forward. Deutsche Bank said it would slash 18,000 jobs and sell a large part of its investment banking operations in a major overhaul. The troubled German lender has long been linked to Trump and a series of toxic loans it gave him. Day 901, July 9th. A federal judge told the Justice Department it could not assign a new legal team to relitigate the citizenship question on the 2020 census. U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman called the request patently deficient and said the U.S. had provided no reasons, let alone satisfactory reasons, for the substitution of counsel. The Justice Department had announced its intention to swap out the legal team of the case after the lawyers told Judge Furman they didn't see how they could defend the Justice Department's position. The House moved forward with criminal contempt proceedings against Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross for defying congressional subpoenas related to the addition of a citizenship question on the 2020 census. The largely symbolic move is nonetheless a significant escalation in the showdown between Congress and the administration. Trump tweeted the U.S. will no longer deal with a British ambassador who called him inept. Trump attacked Sir Kim Derrick for the second day in a row, threatening to cut ties with the British altogether over the leaked memos, which described Trump as radiating insecurity. Trump tweeted that Derrick is not well-liked or well-thought of within the U.S. We will no longer deal with him. He then attacked Prime Minister Theresa May for making a mess over Brexit. The White House blocked a witness in the Mueller investigation from answering 212 questions about potential obstruction of justice by Trump. Andy Donaldson, the former chief of staff to ex-White House counsel Don McGahn, and her contemporaneous notes are cited 65 times in the Mueller report. Also, the former British spy behind the Trump dossier was interviewed for 16 hours by the Justice Department's Inspector General. During the 2016 election, Christopher Steele was hired to research Trump's Russian ties. Day 102, July 10th. A federal appeals court dismissed a lawsuit claiming Trump is illegally profiting from foreign and state government visitors at his luxury hotel in Washington. The unanimous ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals said the attorneys general of Maryland and Delaware lack legal standing to bring the lawsuit. The decision also stops dozens of subpoenas to federal government agencies and Trump's private business entities for financial records related to that hotel. 
Trump's July 4th celebration cost the D.C. government $1.7 million. That bankrupted a special fund used to protect the nation's capital from terror threats and provide security at such events as rallies and state funerals. In a letter to the president, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser warned the fund has now been depleted and the account was never reimbursed for $7.3 million in expenses from Trump's inauguration. A court also ruled Trump cannot block critics on Twitter. The United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit ruled unanimously that because Trump uses Twitter to conduct government business, he cannot exclude some Americans from reading his posts. Public officials who use social media for official government business, the court said, are prohibited from excluding people from an otherwise open online dialogue because they express views with which the official disagrees. Migrant children in an overcrowded detention facility in Arizona say they've been sexually assaulted by guards. Guards also removed sleeping mats from the cells of children who complained about the taste of the water and the food they've been given. Multiple reports of unsanitary and overcrowded conditions have emerged from the detention centers, but these are the first allegations against Customs and Border Patrol officers directly. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta defended his handling of a 2008 plea deal with billionaire Jeffrey Epstein amid criticism and calls to step down. Trump encouraged Acosta to hold a news conference to defend himself, seen as a test for whether Acosta would keep his job. Trump has made publicly very clear that I've got his support, Acosta said, adding, the facts are being overlooked. Meanwhile, Acosta attempted to cut the 2020 budget for combating child labor, forced labor, and human trafficking from $68 million to $18.5 million. The Justice Department is attempting to stop two of Robert Mueller's deputies from testifying before Congress. Lawmakers had previously reached an agreement with the DOJ to have two of Mueller's former prosecutors answer questions behind closed doors next week. However, the DOJ suddenly reversed course and said it was now opposed to the testimony and instructed both men not to appear. Day 903, July 11th. ICE plans to begin nationwide shock and awe raids in major cities to arrest thousands of undocumented families beginning Sunday. The operations urged on by Trump and Stephen Miller had been postponed, partly because of resistance among Trump's own officials. Those raids will be conducted over multiple days and will include collateral deportations. In those, ICE will detain immigrants who happen to be on the scene, even if they are not the target of the raid. Trump issued an executive order to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Trump tweeted, quote, the White House will be hosting a very big and very important social media summit today. Would I have become president without social media? Yes, probably. At its conclusion, we will all go to the beautiful Rose Garden for a news conference on the census and citizenship. The administration is already printing census forms without the citizenship question. The social media summit that Trump referenced is actually a gathering of notorious right-wing trolls. He tweeted, quote, a big subject today at the White House social media summit will be the tremendous dishonesty, bias, discrimination, and suppression practiced by certain companies. The fake news is not as important or as powerful as social media. The guest list reads like a 4chan log and includes James O'Keefe, who has captured secret recordings manipulated to embarrass liberals and journalists. Ali Alexander's false tweet questioning Senator Kamala Harris's racial background was shared by the president's eldest son and a supporter goes by the monitor Carpe Dunctum. He tweets doctored videos of Democrats. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell signaled that an interest rate cut may come soon, sending stocks soaring. The benchmark S&P 500 traded above 3,000 points for the first time. Powell said the Fed expects unemployment to remain low and inflation to gradually increase, but that, quote, uncertainties around Trump's trade wars and concerns about the strength of the global economy continue to weigh on the U.S. economic outlook. A senior military officer accused Trump's nominee for the next vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of sexual misconduct. The officer says General John Heightened subjected her to a series of unwanted advances, including kissing, hugging, and rubbing up against her while she served as one of his aides. Heighton also tried to derail her military career after she rejected him. 
Trump's approval rating has surged to the highest level of his presidency, according to a new Washington Post and ABC poll. 47% of registered voters approve of the job Trump. That's a figure that represents a five-point increase from April. However, 65% of those respondents say that Trump has acted in an unpresidential way since taking office. 50% of Americans still disapprove of Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. The boys from I-94 spoke with Allison Heiji, author of the dystopian novel Scribe. Heiji discussed the folk traditions of Appalachia, why apocalyptic novels are having their moment, and how the Jack Tales retain their power. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11. There was a couple moments in your book that I, I highlighted, and they're not even words we haven't heard of or anything, but it just it was like a perfect ending to a paragraph. One was on page 29, and Hendrix is telling a story about a boy. And uh, the end of the paragraph says, he was a normal boy or normal enough for his mama and his daddy. He grew up like he was supposed to, right to the age of seven or eight. He went to school part of the year, as did his many brothers and sisters, but the teacher made no remarks about him one way or the other. And then the line I underlined was, he didn't rise above. Yeah. And that was just like, that sentence completely explains everything about this kid. And well, I, yeah, it gave, that's the kind of thing that gave the McCarthy feeling. It gives the O'Connor feeling, too. We were talking on the way here about Flannery O'Connor. Mm, my and, hero. And there was uh, mine, too, actually. I, I love Flannery O'Connor. And I, there was just all these really astute observations. Um, uh, another one was you were, uh, there was a, a line where the, the narrator said, uh, or you said, and the narrator was thinking, she could hear at least two of the dogs breathing beneath the boxwoods waiting and you know it's another really simple sentence but it's like when i read that i could i could visualize it and there was a lot of visualization in this book um i had an uh a real idea of what the narrator looked like and it, she didn't look like the cover to me but you know that's that's okay um but you know these book artists never read the book <laughs> well you know and, I, and actually i've gotten scolded on the cover a little bit recently and i just have to roll with it because i love june glasson's art but i think people read they 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 assemble a certain kind of woman and she's not necessarily exactly what i see but she's powerful mm. um whoever she is yeah it's like uh, holden caulfield like when you ever see like a, a a, a visual of him i'm like that's not what he looks like but of course it's my own version because that book really influenced me when i was a kid so but i just i think that those that type of language when it's a, an extraordinarily simple sentence and i have a, a a visualization in my head i think that's really powerful and uh i i was i was pretty blown away by your book and i also want to mention too i actually went to keeneland one year for a wedding on opening day and that's quite a spectacle it's so amazing. It's just so amazing, and to me, the, just a step to the the Keeneland there. It, the class and the ritual and the sort of southern elegance is, in contrast to what's going on on the backside, is just so amazing. The most phenomenal hats I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> in person. Yeah, I mean, I just there's something about animals, right? So that to, to bring it together with the breathing dogs and horses, because I grew up on a farm, and I I didn't. You don't realize this. I, when I went to college, it suddenly became clear to me that not everybody in the world was comfortable around large animals. Or they don't know where their food comes from either. I had yeah, the well, yeah, same experience. I mean, I just, you just learn how to move and watch them, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be very powerful to be with them, and it's nonverbal. 
and again, that was just that was kind of a gift of childhood to me, and it has really stayed with me. And I think moving, I moved to that space where people are with animals pretty frequently in storytelling because it just gives me other facets to human character that I can't quite get um, just directly. Yeah. Well, since Jeremy spoiled the reading that I was going to have by actually directly (laughs) quoting from it, uh, as always, we have readings that are done uh, by Ms. Shanna Van Volt. She reads passages from the week's books. This week, it's with Jeff Parker, and we want to thank our friends at International Anthem. Allison, will you stick around for a second while we play this segment of your book, and then we'll get right back to you? Absolutely. All right. So we're going to hear a reading right now from Scribe. This is by Allison Hagee. It's from her new novel. Take it away, Shanna. She served his tea in a china cup one that still had its companion saucer. They were the last pieces of her mother's cherished set. When the cup and saucer finally broke, she knew she would not feel sorrow. She predicted laughter instead, the laughter of the spurned. I'm sorry I kept you waiting, she said to Hendricks. It falls on me sometimes, the making of sentences, and it's best if I stay close to the papers until the ink has dried. It's coming to you then, Hendricks said, trying not to gawk at the arrangements she had made inside of her house. They were in the cluttered space she treated as her kitchen. There were bundles of roots and stalks hanging from the ceiling and frames stretched with small animal skins angled against the walls. There were beakers and crocks and jars. The letter's coming? It is, she said, keeping her voice oriel bright. She didn't tell him she had taken a bath of her own and that she was, on his account, indulging herself in ways she hadn't allowed for longer than she could remember. I got to tell the truth. I ain't seen more than one or two letters of the kind you write in my whole life. There was a man at the port of Charleston who would scratch out your fortune on the leaf of a palm tree if you asked. He knew all manner of foreign alphabets. And I met a miner once who carved accounts of people's sins into the black rock of a mine shaft where nobody else could reach them. You could pay him to do that. But it's new to me, asking something like this, he said, shifting uncomfortably in what she saw was a clean long-tailed shirt. I'll get at the wood chopping tomorrow. I reckon you have an axe. There's no need to hurry, she said. This isn't a race between us. He had no response to that. The tea was her concoction, sweet grasses, rose hips, mint. There was honey from one of her sister's remaining hives, but neither of them spooned at it. She had asked him to sit in one of her square back chairs in front of an unlit cooking fire. The men from the camp are also cutting wood on my land. Sometimes they ask. Sometimes they don't. Use care. I don't reckon they'll mess with me if I'm working for you. Probably not, she said. We have our agreement. You don't worry they'll pick you clean, he asked. It looks like there's more than a few of them set down in your fields. I've already been picked clean, Mr. Hendricks, many times, haven't you? He turned his face away from her then, his scrubbed and sun-drawn face. They're respectful, she told him, reminding herself to rest her cup on her knees so the palsy in her hand wouldn't show. They keep the camp neat, and they're careful how much they hunt and fish, but they won't use the spring water up here. They won't even sip at it. They always boil water from the river or the creek. That's just convenience, he said. I don't think so. They're somewhat afraid of me, no matter what I say or do. I guess everyone around here is somewhat afraid of you, he said, putting some volume into his voice. I know I am. Glitter Money turned in a fierce John Daly session this week in Studio A. Engineered by Ari Shellist, this is Scared. 
give a care about you. Train full of white people, this black girl got something to say. I pay a salary and taxes I can't afford, so you gon' make time today. No kicking, no picking. Daddy got beat up by a big black woman with a beer mug. Ah! Thoughts and prayers to the fire burning in my chest. Bump your quest. You the barbarics. You causing this unrest. No time for rest. We need destruction with our peace protest. Protect my peaceful locusts and trumpets. Jesus left the rest. We found the treasure. A little more pressure. A little more pressure. Don't walk the police. Only reason to stand together is to save all together. Bump We the villains. Afraid. Sound the trumpets, sound the plagues, fire burning in our veins, Armageddon between our legs. Hoop, louder and louder. Hoop, we got the power. Hoop, louder and louder. Hoop, we got the power. Our glitter uprising for guns, sinister socialist sparkling scum, scheming and thieving your guns, gnaw on the heels of the rich, young Christ. Corruption is so overpriced. Ice poles melting, drip, drip, yikes. How we still swarming in ice? Your soul gonna pay the price. Reading old whites, their last rights. Here's to new beginnings, wearing big at earrings. AOC in congressional hearings. Congress women's glares piercing. Got all the bad chicks cheering. Got all the bad chicks steering. We keep appearing like food, mother, mother, we. We persevering, I'ma be going hysterical. Screaming health care for all. Let's go, I'm ready to brawl. Vigilantes stand together. Dismantle the system by any measure. Five inch heels at the neck of oppressors. A little more pressure, a little more pressure. We the villains, be afraid. Sound the trumpets, sound the plagues. Curse your family, curse your name. We bring the fire, we bring the pain. Hoo! Louder and louder. Hoo! We got the power. Hoo! Louder and louder. Hoo! We got the power. They want us in chains, enjoying our pain. Not allowed to read, not allowed to feel. We all know Santa plans to still be here. I was in love with a man skin dark as me. Summer was hot, streets were hot. When we weren't together, I never know. Would the hashtag be his nickname or John Doe? Shaking Texan, are you with your boys? Are you on the ground, circle my pigs and hounds? Then I didn't want him, but he made them nervous. No thoughts for his family. Got thanks for their service. Our normal, but this is not normal. This is not normal. The list goes on and on, and I'm still burdened. And my kids will be burdened, and the kids will be burdened. So I'm pulling the curtain. We off the edge now. Never trust them now. Never, Never did now. They want us dead now. They should be where now. Who? Louder and louder. Who? We got the power. Who? Louder and louder. Who? We got the power. Who? Louder and louder. Who? We got the power. Who? Louder and louder. Who? We got the power. Are we doing yet? 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 Are we doing? Moving on. Uh, moving now to uh, environmental news. Uh, the Greater Nordic Crazy Frog has been declared extinct in the wild. It's a sad day. Um, I consider myself an yes. environmentalist. Yeah, I mean these these things have been around for millennia. I mean the I I don't know the exact Latin translation, but as far as I know, uh, the Romans. Uh, characterized these them the direct translation of the crazy of the the crazy frogs um, from Latin into English is I believe uh, tailless alcoholics. Yeah, it is a neurodionysis. Yes, which is the tailless um, alcoholic. Yeah, and 
and, and and I mean, so these things have been in in popular culture since you know the ancient times. Well, the Vikings used to revere them as the thing. Um, you know, in their native sort of forests around Stockholm. Um, you know, the, 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 the Vikings were there and they'd see the frogs and they'd hear their distinctive call mm -hmm. and they would, and they would take that into, into battle. Yes. And, um, the, the, the distinctive cry of the crazy frog. I believe that when, when the, when the Egyptians heard the, uh, heard the crazy frog, heard the crazy frogs, uh, making their, their distinctive mating cry, they knew that that was when the Nile was about to rise. I can't I can't talk to the veracity of that. Um I do I can say though that the um International Union for the Conservation of Nature has declared them extinct in the it's wild. Tragic. It is really tragic. Um the last sighting had in fact occurred over a decade ago. Um but the call um yes. they had a wider range as we were discussing. They sure. did definitely have a wider range. They were they were they were they were, they were um Spread far out into Eurasia, yeah. into early prehistory, sure. but the... they've been cut back just over over the decades. Yeah, and I believe ever since that that no that well known, uh, I believe roughly between three and four minute clip of the crazy frog that they gotten just you know a little over a decade ago, maybe maybe mm -hmm. decade and a half ago. Um, I mean, the reason that there had been no there have been no videos since then. Since that time period is because uh, they had been endangered for quite a while. That they didn't want to disturb these creatures in their national habitat. Yeah, and it's quite rare to see. Um, it, it's rare to see this dry nature documentary sort of footage to receive <laughs> that that level of attention, right? And to receive that level on the uh, the pop charts, number sure. one in the UK. Yes, um, it shows. It shows that there is there is a. An environmentalist in all of us. Well, and, and that's and that's kind of the um, the the silver lining to the cloud is that perhaps um, given how popular, um, how distinctive, and how just uh, it's considered charismatic megafauna in sure. the in the environmentalist community. Um, but considering just how popular Crazy Frog was, maybe this will be the kick in the pants that a lot of people will need to start finally caring sure. about you know environmental issues. And yeah. I, I know that's like that's 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 a bittersweet sort of. Um, thing to take joy in, but or not even joy to take yes. stock, but it's pride it, of to take to put thought into. It's but it is what it is. Yeah. When so uh, when was the last uh, when was the last when was the last person to hear the call? Well, yeah. that's that's exact. That's the thing. Um, that is why it was declared extinct recently. Is because it um, had been about. It's been a year um, outside of um, Stockholm specifically. Mm -hmm. This was the last range there had been. For many decades without a sighting, but since but, but constantly they heard the call. Yes. Um, and ultimately, what um, zoologists determined was is this was the last wild male crazy frog yes. giving out their their, their mating their, call. Yes, their final bing bing to a mate that would never come. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist.
The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.